0: Hopefully you've been with us online over the last couple of weeks and you've been tracking through this series. Maybe you're in a home group. Hopefully you've been reading these texts for yourself. There's a lot of chapters each week to read. Dive in, verse 1, chapter 16. Look at it with me. It says, The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Let me just pause for a minute. You got the context? Can you change track track and kind of dive in here with us? Samuel, the one who this book is named after, is mourning Saul. He's not mourning Saul because Saul has died. He's actually mourning Saul because he's just found out that Saul is no longer going to be king of Israel. That Saul got fired from being the leader of God's people. And Samuel is mourning for Saul, but that time of mourning has come to an end and God is going to call him to do something else. Saul, if you've been with us, is the first king of Israel. He's the first king over God's people and he gets fired early. Why does he get fired early? If you've been reading these chapters, you'll know. Basically, he got fired early because though he looked the part, from the outside, he was missing something very crucial, which was what needed to be alive and well on the inside of the man. If you know how Paul got chosen, he was taller than everyone else and pretty handsome and so pretty impressive to everyone look at, a bit of an obvious choice. People want to be led by a king who's impressive. But what, Paul was, what Saul was missing was a heart that actually wanted to obey the Lord. That's what was missing for Saul. Um, He keeps disobeying God, he keeps rejecting the word of God Um, and if you go back through chapter 13, 14 and 15 you get three classic incidences where Saul, it's basically three strikes and he's out. You go back to chapter 13 um, and though Saul gets told before you go out into battle mate you need to wait for Samuel to come and offer a sacrifice as the priest to seek the Lord and then you head out with his blessing and his direction. But Samuel didn't wait. He got impatient and decided he would act as a priest himself, makes the sacrifice himself instead of waiting for Samuel. So he disobeys the Lord outright. You get to chapter 14, and hopefully some of these things you've been looking at already. Um, Saul makes a really dumb vow before God, and it's so silly that he finds out he needs to go back on that vow before God. That's a big mistake to make before God. You get to chapter 15... And Saul gets really specific instructions about what he's meant to do when he goes into battle. He's not to leave anyone alive and he's not to take any plunder. It was a really clear word from the Lord. But Saul instead decides it would be a great idea to take some plunder. So he takes things from that nation and he keeps the king alive and others alive as well. So that basically just goes directly against what the Lord called him to do. And when he's called to account for it, initially, he tries to fudge and lie a little bit and cover up his tracks. But he's found out. It's kind of obvious. Look at verse 26 of chapter 15 at the end of that incident. But Samuel said to him, I will not go back with you. You have rejected the word of the Lord and the Lord has rejected you as king over Israel. Now, you might think that's a little bit strong. You might think, oh, surely he... Okay, so he doesn't follow all the commands of the Lord. What's the big issue? Well, the big issue is if you're going to lead God's people, you need to lead them in obedience to the real king. And that was always meant to be the case. It was made really clear. In fact, if you want to just put something there in 1 Samuel and flick back to Deuteronomy 17 with me, this will be a really interesting thing for us to see. So come back to Deuteronomy 17, which is the first time God's people get instructions about the kind of king that if they're going to ask for one, this is who it needs to be. So Deuteronomy 17, you pick it up there in verse 14, the first few verses are talking about how he needs to be a king who actually um, is chosen by God and he needs to be a king who doesn't take to himself, um, you know, all the, all the um, what is it, all the horses in the land and he doesn't take many wives for himself. But pick it up there in verses 18. Look at this, it's really great. When he takes the throne of his kingdom, he is to write for himself on a scroll, a copy of this law taken from that of the Levitical priests. Okay, so here's what the king's meant to do. He's meant to write his own copy of the Bible. Now, why would the king be called to write his own copy of the Bible? I tell you what, one way to learn something well is to write it yourself. You know, that's why the teacher always got you to write multiple times the thing you did wrong on the board, which never really worked, did it? But the concept of writing out Scripture, your own copy of Scripture, your pen would be on that paper, and that would be his. And the idea is, look, it flows on and tells you why... Um, it is to be with him, so he's to carry it with him all the time and he's to read it all the days of his life so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God and follow carefully all the words of this law and his decrees. You see why? He's got to write his own Bible or his own copy of the Bible is so that he knows it well himself and... And he reads it all the days of his life and he learns to revere the Lord, which is fear the Lord by obeying the Lord and taking his word seriously. Can you see what the leader of God's people needed to lead with? His own serious personal obedience. And that is how he was meant to lead God's people, so that God's people would be led to do the very same thing, live in reverence before God. And just on this one, I just, I mean, this is particularly for the king, but it is for the king, for the sake of all the people. And the principle applies for us today. I'm not going to tell you, you have to write out your own copy of the Bible, but maybe, like, why not make sure you know it well enough because you've written it out yourself? Why not make sure you know your Bible well because you're reading it all the days of your life? Why not do anything you can to keep the words of God and the instructions of God right at the forefront of your mind and at the right on the tip of your tongue so that you live in reverent fear before God, with Him as your Lord? Do you know your Bible? Can you find verses? Do you learn it by rote? Are you doing anything you can to actually have God's Word and His instruction right at the front of your life? Directing your decisions so that it matters to you more than anything that you obey him. Keep his instructions right at the forefront. That's why the king was meant to do that. Turn back to 1 Samuel with me now. He was meant to lead all of God's people to obey the king like that because the king of God's people really is just a king under the king of kings. He was meant to be trying to get everyone to submit to the real Lord And Saul fails pretty miserably right from the get-go. So right up front, he gets fired. Does that make sense? Does that seem reasonable? I think so. Here, Samuel's given instruction to actually actually go and anoint the next fella, the next king, who we know to be King David. So you read on in verse 1 there, chapter 16. Um, Samuel says, or God says to Samuel, sorry, fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. Now, why does Samuel need to fill his horn with oil and get going to Bethlehem? Because God has actually chosen one of Jesse's sons to be king and Samuel's to take a horn of oil because it's with the oil um, that you anoint someone to a very special position like king. Yeah? So kings would be anointed. And you might see language in the Psalms of oil flowing down a man's head and over his beard and think, what's so great about that? The concept of oil is anointing, which is to choose and set aside a particular person for a particular purpose. And just a little bit of background here on anointing. The concept of anointing, like the Hebrew word for anointing, is the word Messiah. Messiah. When you get to the New Testament, the Greek translation of the Hebrew word for anointing is Christ. So the king in the Old Testament was this forerunner of the Messiah, the Saviour, the forerunner, the preview of the Christ, who we know is Jesus. Because the king was to be the protector and saviour of God's people as they led them to the one true God. And so Samuel's told, get your your horn with oil. Your time for mourning's over. Get up and get moving because I'm going to get you to anoint the next king. And so he sends him to Bethlehem to a particular family, the family of Jesse. And he's told him that one of Jesse's sons is going to be the king of Israel and interestingly enough it's worth noting that Jesse is the grandson of Ruth and Boaz. If you know the story of Ruth it's amazing that all happens in Bethlehem and here is their grandson Jesse and we're told that it's one of Jesse's sons who's going to be king. Pick up the story with me how it goes in verses 2 and 3 as Samuel heads to Bethlehem. Samuel said, "Um, how can I go? If Saul hears about it, he'll kill me. So he's a little bit worried. Fair enough. If the existing king, who's yet to be dethroned and, and will yet to be dethroned for a little while until the next king kind of grows up and it happens. But if Saul was to hear that some other king is going to be anointed... Um, yeah he'd be angry at Samuel and he'd try and take him down so Samuel's concerned for his own life God tells him look just go to Bethlehem and actually just make an offering and a sacrifice there and just tell them you've come to do that so don't go full disclosure on them just give them part of the truth which is interesting so the Lord said take a heifer and say, I've come to sacrifice the Lord, invite Jesse to sacrifice, and I will show you what to do, you are to anoint for me the one I indicate. So Samuel did what the Lord said, when he arrived in Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled, when they met him, they asked, do you come in peace? Which is interesting, why are the elders of the town of Bethlehem trembling in fear when Samuel turns up? I reckon it's got something to do with what Samuel's just done, and they've probably heard about it. You know, because Saul kept the king of the nation that he was meant to destroy alive, Samuel needed to come in and actually put to death this king, Agag. And he's just done that. It's brutal. But it's to a kind of correct what Saul failed to do. And now Samuel comes into Bethlehem. You can imagine why they're a little bit nervous. What's he come here to do? He's, who's he going to slaughter next? So a little bit nervous, but he assures them, no, I'm not here to kill anyone. It's Okay. Um, So verse 5, it says, "Um, yes, I come in peace, Samuel says. "Um, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord, so consecrate yourselves um, and invite Jesse and his sons to come and sacrifice with us. And so they do that. And look at verse 6. You can imagine Samuel's wondering who it's going to be. Which of Jesse's sons is it going to be? And when he lays eyes first on Eliab... See verse 6. When he arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before me. So, the first of Jesse's sons that Samuel sees is this guy Eliab, and he thinks, Oh, this must be it. And why does he think, Oh, this guy must be it? Well, you find out later on, again, it's because he's tall and handsome. So it's almost like Samuel hasn't really learned the lesson of what really matters about a king. He just assumes, okay, this guy's tall and handsome. This must be it. But the answer from God is no. It's not this guy. I've rejected this guy as well. And then Jesse brings out the rest of his sons one by one, and it's no to all of them. Look at verses 8 and 9. Then Jesse called um, Abinadab, had him come before Samuel, but Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then said to Shammah, passed by but Samuel said nor has the Lord chosen this one Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel and Samuel said the Lord has not chosen any of these and then he said to Jesse are these all the sons you've got I mean imagine having seven sons and then someone gone. are you serious is that all you got <laughs> seven sons Samuel's like have you got any more sons and they're like oh there is another one but we didn't think to bring him in because he's the youngest and he's we treat him like a bit of a servant So he's out there looking after the sheep. But we didn't think you'd bother with him. And Samuel goes, oh, bring him in. Let's have a look at him. So they bring in the youngest son, David. Pick it up there. Um, What is it? You're reading on in that verse, verse 11. And it says, "Um, there's still the youngest. He's tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We won't sit down until he arrives. Verse 12. So he sent for him and he had him brought in. And he was glowing with health. And had fine appearance and handsome features. So he's not the ugly duckling of the family. That's not why God's chosen him, because he's ugly. He doesn't appear to be tall, but he is handsome. right? So he's brought in. Then the Lord says to Samuel, rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Samuel then went to Ramah. Why this one? Why does God choose that one and not the other ones? Is it because he's ugly? Apparently not. Is it because he's short? Well, that could be it. But verse 7 means we don't need to guess. God says the basis on which he's come to choose this one and not the others. Look at verse 7. This is in regard to the first son, in a sense. The Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. And then look at this. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Verse 7 of chapter 16 of 1 Samuel is one of those famous verses in the Bible that gets quoted over and over again because it's a cracker, isn't it? Like, look at it with me there again. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Let's spend some time thinking into that one together in this moment. The Lord is not impressed by the same things humans are impressed by. Humans typically do look at the outward appearance, and you see someone who's tall and someone who's handsome, and that's what we look at. It's hard to look past it, but we're told here that the Lord... He would see that as well, but he looks through that, doesn't he? The Lord looks at the heart, and what's he looking for in the heart? He's looking for a heart that has a desire to obey. Yeah? A desire to obey. That's how Saul failed, and he's looking for a heart that wants to obey him. I mean, back in chapter 13 verse 14 you get a similar phrase which gives you a little bit more nuance on what he's looking for in the heart do you remember the phrase that God is looking for a man after God's own heart remember that one that's probably another famous passage as well God's looking for someone who's got a heart that's after his heart keen for his heart wanting to obey the Lord And that's what Israel needs. They need a king with a heart to obey the Lord. Now, I'm going to offer an alternative interpretation of this verse in just a minute, which actually changes the emphasis completely. And it's not the classic common interpretation. So we'll get there in just a minute. But let's start with the common classic way of understanding this, which is just the face value of we tend to get stuck on the externals, but God looks through the externals to the heart. The Lord looks at the heart. Let's think about that one together. Because I think when we consider a God who looks at the heart, it can bring for us two different emotions in the same moment. To hear that God looks at the heart can both bring comfort, yeah, and it can also bring a bit of alarm, don't you reckon? Comfort and alarm. Let's start with comfort. To hear that God, the one who what he thinks really matters, actually looks beyond your physical appearance at your heart is comforting because we live in a world that is focused on externals. And maybe you feel the exhausting nature and and how debilitating it can be to live in a world that's just judging you by how you look on the outside or perform with your externals. We do, don't we? We get judged by our appearance. You've probably already judged me tonight in some fashion about what I'm wearing or what I'm not wearing. We get judged according to our body shape. We get judged according to our height. We get judged according to our features. And isn't it funny because all those things basically end up affecting your physical ability, your athletic ability, and, you've, and, and so in the end you really don't have much to do with any of that. We judge people by externals in such a way that even when we talk about what's inside a person, we we use, have you ever heard someone say, oh yes, but she's beautiful on the inside? You know what I mean? That's really just a bit of a sledge that she's ugly on the outside, isn't it? You know, we, we know we're meant to value the inside, but geez, we get stuck on what's going on in the externals. And maybe even just tonight in this moment, you, you've been exhausted lately by being judged by how you look and what you've got. But the funny thing about all that is, you, there's not much you can do about your appearance. There's little things you can do. But really, by and large, you got what you've been given, and you've got to work with what you've got. Am I right? Like none of you chose the eye color that you've got, or the height that you've got, or the skin type you've got, or the body shape you've got. You can work hard with what you've got, but basically you've got what you've been given. I've always thought it's funny when people appear smug and proud because they're just these drop-dead, gorgeous-looking specimens of humans. And it's like, how can you be proud? You did nothing to get that. You just got given it at birth. And me over here with my freckles and I've always got burnt really easily and oh, I, didn't, I didn't do anything to get that, I just got given this. You know? And you've got your things that you wish were different. And it's funny, you can't do anything about it, you've got to work with what you've got. And even watching the Olympics lately, you know, what, what are you watching? You're watching these elite athletes perform at incredibly high levels. Yeah, and, and they're, they're performing at the kind of level where um, when they win great awards, they often get interviewed afterwards, and, and there's often a really common commentary that they give, and that is, um, look, I worked really hard, and my trainers really helped me work really hard, and I've been really committed to do this, and I just kind of want to say to everybody out there, you can achieve your dreams if, if you just don't give up on them and just work really hard. Everything is possible, but it's not Because the truth is, it doesn't matter how much I want it or train hard, I will never be able to compete with elite athletes in basketball, right? I'm just not tall enough. It doesn't matter how much I try to bulk up, and I've tried to bulk up, it just goes straight through me, it doesn't ever work. I'll be skinny Tim forever, probably, right? It doesn't matter how much I bulk up, I'm never going to be competitive in weightlifting, I'm never getting competitive in shot put or hammer throw. Les and Mason, those guys have got a crack at it, right? It's in their genes. They could do that kind of thing, but it's never going to work for me. So everything is not possible actually for me. It doesn't matter how hard I try. So that mantra that gets sold to us, just believe in yourself and you can do anything... Well, there's a certain range of things that you could have a crack at if you were born with a certain kind of genes and DNA that enable you to train and compete in that way. Fair enough. It's hard to live in a world where you get judged by your physical appearance and what you can do, and a lot of that's got nothing to do with you. You were just given it at the start. And so here's where I think it's comforting. I love the fact that we have a God who, what He thinks of us matters more than anything. I love that we've got a God, and I'm comforted by that we've got a God who looks within, who looks through all that, to the deeper places, to my heart, to my soul, to my spirit, to to the area that can be developed, to the thing that can be changed, to the thing in you, the very core of you, that can be strengthened. Are you with me? God's looking at that, and he's interested in that, and that's good news and comforting because that can change that can grow, that can develop. The core of your being, kind of who you are, can grow. Who you are becoming, your character, that can be transformed. Physical training is of some value, we find out in 1 Timothy, but training in godliness is of ultimate value for this life and the life to come. So train yourself in godliness. That's what God's looking at. That's what he cares about. And that's so comforting for us in your maybe discontent about the body you've got. And then as you age and you hit that point where you realize any training from this point on is just going to be trying to hang on to a glimpse of what I used to be able to do because it's kind of downhill for me from here. And that's that midlife crisis people have. And I'm well beyond that now. Yeah, that midlife crisis is going to come for you. And then beyond that, we're going to get the kind of news, all of us, that some of us are getting at the moment it's going to come for you and for some of you it's going to come earlier than you ever wanted it to come and it's going to be a shock and it's going to be painful but it's coming because outwardly you and I are wasting away but here's the great comfort while that's happening you can be inwardly being renewed and transformed day by day you know that verse How good's that? So what are you going to focus on with your life? What's it about? Well, don't worry about the world and how it's looking at the externals and anything you can achieve that's simply physical. Because what matters is what God sees and what he cares about is you being transformed on the inside, growing in your character, growing in your delight of him and your service for him and and heart to obey him. That's what he sees. That's what matters. Give your life to developing that first and foremost. Because because God looks at the heart. How comforting is that? That he looks at the thing that we can do something about. By cooperating with him and the work of his spirit. So up front it's comforting. But then of course it's not simply comforting is it? It's also um, kind of alarming to hear that God looks at the heart. Because what that means is he sees you on the inside. He sees what you really like. And that's just a bit embarrassing, isn't it? Because there's certain things you can hide from the people around you. But you can't hide anything from God. He sees alongside your good desires, he sees deep, dark desires. He hears alongside your good and charitable thoughts about others. He sees your Dark, hateful thoughts about others. He sees your lusts. He, he, knows, he knows that there are things about you that are wonderful, but he also knows what you really like. And the wool can't be pulled over his eyes. He can't be fooled like people can be fooled because he sees the real you. And I just kind of want to say that's a little bit alarming. <laughs> that's a little bit embarrassing. I do this thing where I try and hide what I'm really like sometimes do you ever do that (laughs) you ever try and present the best version of yourself so people think you're better than you really are I do it all the time and I just kind of want to get out there with that and kind of say that's part of my failing and just in little ways don't go worrying about big things. Um, just a little way. So if you know me well, you might have seen me in the surf, in the water, and you'll know that from time to time I sometimes get a little bit frustrated. You know, maybe I'm frustrated at my own inability or maybe I'm frustrated at someone else is taking waves that I think are mine. Whatever it is, um, but above the surface I'm like a duck, it's just cruising along usually, cruising along, not looking frustrated, but under the water the legs are just kicking. You know what I mean? And, and sometimes what I do with my frustration is I've learned how to do this one. I, I just kind of hide it. So when I fall off a wave or when something happens, I go under the water and I let it all out under the water, where no one can hear it. You know, just a big rah! and then I come back up and I'm like, Hey, how you going? You know, it's a beautiful day, isn't it? How you going? You know, doing that kind of thing. But you know what? God sees the underwater Tim. Yeah, and and God knows the underwater you too, where you hide what's really going on in your heart and your frustration. God knows that, sees that, still loves you. In fact, he knows it more than you even know it about yourself. And he knows that it's such a big issue. The only way out of it was for him to die for your sin and your brokenness so that there's a way out. As Jesus stands in your place and stands in my place, which is why I want to be open about admitting my failures. Because this is not about me being good. This is about God being merciful to someone who's not. There's the grace of God. So it's embarrassing and it's challenging because God sees the real you. But I tell you what, if you can humble yourself and acknowledge to the one who already knows everything about yourself, your sin, confess it to him, repent, cry out to him for help He's able to help you and help you change. And he's able to remind you that Jesus stands in your place and takes your shame upon himself so you can stand before God and be loved. How good's that? You're not going to find that anywhere else. You know? The Lord of the universe loves you because of Jesus. So you can't fool God, you can't fool him with the little things you know, making yourself out to be better than you are, and you can't fill God with the big thing either, and I want you to think about this one with me for a minute, you can't, you can, you can't fill God really with the big thing being whether you really do trust in Jesus as your saviour, you you can fill people, and and I say that because I know I've been in churches for years and years, and I know that there's people in church, church church-going people, helpful in church helpful to others all around them who can go for years and years and years in church life wonderfully without ever really converting in their heart to Christ and bowing their knee to him as Lord and putting their hand up and say I desperately need a savior otherwise I'm gone you know but the thing is you can hide that from people But you can't hide it from God. He sees whether you've really come to trust in Jesus or not, right in the deeper places. So I'm just going to go ahead and assume that some of you are trying to not let people see that you haven't really done that yet. And you may be doing a good job of convincing us, but God sees that you haven't. And one day you're going to stand before him. And that's all that's going to matter. Whether you really have reached out and received Jesus as your saviour, the saviour you desperately need, and bowed the knee to him as your Lord, and, and giving your heart to him. can't hide that from God. So now's the day to do it. Trust in Jesus properly in the deep down places. You let go and hand your life to him. So there's, the, there's a little bit of reflection from what I would say is the more common way to read this passage, the classic way to read this passage. Now let me just give you four minutes and then wrap up on what might be an alternative read of this passage. It's always a little bit dangerous. This can rock people a little bit. But I can't help but to bring this. I couldn't not bring this. And I'll tell you why I can't do it. It's because there's always been something about this passage that troubles me. It troubles me because it's possible that there's a danger that you can catch from this passage that goes like this. There's a danger in concluding that God chooses or accepts people simply by looking inside of them to find people who are good at heart and God therefore rejects people who have got bad hearts and accepts people who have got good hearts so just be a person with a good heart and then God will accept you can you see the problem with coming to that conclusion from this passage the problem is that's not David by the way He does a bit better than Saul as far as obedience, but then he's got some classic stuff-ups, and we'll get to them in the next few chapters, right? And the problem is reading it that way means that's actually not the gospel message. That's the opposite of Christianity. Most people think that's that's what Christianity is. God looks, tries to find good people, people who have made themselves right, sought themselves out, learned how to live a good life before God, and then goes, okay, you're accepted. I've got so many mates who say, and I ask them the question, what, what are you honestly, if, if there is a God and at the end of this life you stand before him, what are, you, what are you going to say to him? And most of my mates have said a similar thing. Well, you know, he'll, he'll understand. He'll know I'm a pretty good bloke. You know, he'll know, I'm not that bad. Which is basically to think God's going to look in and go, yeah, you're all right. And that's the basis of his acceptance of us. That's actually not Christianity. That's every other religion. That's every other philosophy. It's not Christianity. Christianity is where God looks and he sees the reality of our heart sends his son, Jesus. And the only way to avoid judgment is actually to put your trust in Jesus. So can you see the danger where you can go with this passage? And it would wreck my heart if anyone left here tonight thinking, okay, God looks inside, so I've just got to get the insides all sorted out. I just got to get that good and then God will love me. Please don't leave here tonight thinking that's how it works. Please don't. So the other way to read this passage, I'm going to need to go to kind of briefly with you and I'm going to lose some of you guys in this moment. <clears throat> so there's a really good Hebrew, um, you know... Um, what do you call him? theologian, Hebrew theologian, John Woodhouse, he's down in Sydney way, who actually gives a different rendering of this passage, that instead of saying the the English translation we've got here, um, translates it instead in verse 7 to say, man sees with his eyes, but God sees with his heart. God sees with his heart. See how that's a different rendering? Puts the emphasis in a different place. So instead of the Lord looks at the heart, of a person, the alternative translation would be: the Lord looks at His heart when He's choosing and accepting. So you go back to chapter thirteen, verse four, and here's how it would change that because it's the same language in chapter thirteen, same Hebrew words, same pronoun that's used, and so the so so the, so the preposition there it, it says instead of it'll be different to, instead of. Um, God looking for a man after his own heart. That preposition after is also just as commonly translated according to. So it changes it to this. God is looking for a man according to his own heart. Yeah? So the preposition qualifies the verb, not the noun. Some of you are like, yeah, got it. Others, you're like, I don't know what a preposition is. Don't worry about it. But there's a different way to read this passage. And actually, one of the key things that makes me want to go there is when you go to 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 21, the same Hebrew language is used. And look at how it's translated. It's translated in this way. In regards to God choosing David, David says to him, you've done what you've done according to your will, which changes the emphasis to God looking to see what's in his own heart and choosing according to his own plan and purpose. It it emphasises that God views everything from the perspective of his own eternal will and purpose and plan. It emphasises that everything is taking place according to God's own intentions. It's not dependent on what he sees in other people's hearts. Yeah? So, I just put this to you. It may not simply be that the Lord is looking for um, a good man with lots of God in his heart. It may actually be, and rather a better translation, that the Lord is looking for a man in his own heart, a man of his own choosing, that fits with his grand plan where he's taking things. So, it's more about the place that the man has in God's heart rather than the place that God has in a man's heart. Are you with me? Flips the emphasis. And as that flips that emphasis, if you go with that rendering, then that leaves us thinking about these types of things, and I'll finish on this. It ends up thinking that the emphasis now is instead of towards the suitability of a person, it's, it's actually more about what God's plans are It's it's towards God's initiative according to his perspective in history. And so what you've got here is God choosing a young man from Bethlehem not because there's something particularly good in the young man but because God's got a plan to actually from this place in Bethlehem bring a lineage of people that brings about the real king. Does that make any sense to you? God's got a plan. To one day bring the real king, the real Messiah, the real Christ. From a line of people who were in Bethlehem. And so that's why he chooses David, Jesse's son. Because he's predetermined to bring about his rescue plan in the line of David. And so about a thousand years after this, that's exactly what he does. The real king arrives. The son of God. He's born in Bethlehem. In the line of David. He's anointed by the Holy Spirit. He's crowned with thorns. He fights the ultimate battle on the cross against the greatest enemy sin. And he's raised three days later to display his victory over the enemy of sin and show himself to be the true king, the true Messiah, the true Christ, the saviour you really need. God is the one who knows how to rescue and lead his people. And so he sends Jesus but he chooses David in advance to bring about Jesus because it's all according to God's eternal plan and purpose so we can see how merciful and gracious he is. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We ask that you by your spirit would enable us to keep digging deeper and understanding it the best we can. We're so glad and comforted that you look beyond the physicals. You see what's going on inside. But Lord, when you see that, we realize we're exposed. And we see our desperate need for transformation. We see the need that they consider doing that even tonight. Would you lead them to do that, Lord? And Lord, for all of us, would you help us to take seriously your word your instructions and your obedience, but, but fall again and again on your mercy and grace that we receive through the coming of your true King, the one you had in your heart, the one you had in your mind, you, the, the one that through your grand plan and purposes you always intended to bring to rescue humanity. And we're so grateful to you, our merciful and gracious God. We pray this through the name of your son, Jesus, and all the people said... Amen.